Well, this morning we continue our three-week series on the three events that sort of form the backbone of the gospel story and the ministry of the church. We began last week by looking in some detail at the event of the resurrection. And today we take a look at an event that we spend a little bit less time focusing on, but which is ever still just as important. And that is the ascension, the return of Christ back to the right hand of the Father in heaven. And so let me invite you to join me as we turn to the book of Acts, which is the fifth book in the New Testament. Acts was also written by Luke, who wrote the gospel that carries his name. And he tells us the story of how 40 days after being resurrected and spending that time appearing to his disciples, Jesus ascended back into heaven. And we read that story in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Here's what Luke records for us. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be unto God. Well, on April the 12th, 1961, the Soviet Union became the very first nation to successfully launch a human being into outer space. Cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin spent 108 minutes orbiting our planet before beginning his descent back to Earth. The trip didn't go quite as smoothly as planned. During his descent, he had to bail out of the orbiter and parachute to the ground, and he ended up landing 250 miles away from where they were looking for him. 
When he landed, he had to go find local residents to get them to call the authorities so they could figure out where he was. But nevertheless, at least for that temporary moment, the Soviet Union took first place in the race for space. Well, in the years following that fateful trip, Gagarin became famous for something he supposedly said upon returning. It was widely reported that Gagarin told the Soviet leadership, quote, I went up into space, but I did not encounter any God. Now those words are interesting for at least two reasons. The first is that Yuri Gagarin never actually said them. Yuri Gagarin was actually a devout Christian, born and raised in the Orthodox Church, raised his own children there. As his friend, General Valentin Petrov, professor of the Russian Air Force Academy, once put it, Gagarin always confessed God whenever he was provoked, no matter where he was. Those words, I went up into space and didn't encounter any God there, they actually, as best we can tell, came from Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev during a speech touting the Communist Party's anti-religious policy. It was Khrushchev who said, Gagarin went up into space, but he didn't encounter any God. Of course, by then, Gagarin was a national hero. And so to give those words more weight, the communist propaganda machine falsely put those words on his lips. But whatever the original source of Gagarin's alleged quote may have been, that statement, I went up into space and I didn't encounter any God there, is interesting for another reason. Because it raises a question. Where exactly is heaven? And how far up do you have to go before you get there? And when we were children, we likely believed that heaven was up there just beyond the clouds, up there in the sky. But given what we now know about how our universe is put together and how our planet rotates on its axis once every 24 hours as it hurtles through the empty vacuum of space, well, we can't even be sure anymore where up is. If I were to ask you to point up right now, and then were to come to your home exactly 12 hours from now and ask you to point up then, you'd be pointing in exactly the opposite direction. So where is heaven? And which direction do we have to travel if we're going to get there? Well, I ask the question because in Acts chapter 1, Luke tells us that 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven. Verse 9 says that Jesus was taken up until a cloud hid him from the disciples' eyes, much in the same way that a rocket ship would blast up into the sky until we couldn't see it anymore. But, but where exactly did he go? And how far would our rocket have to fly in order to get to where he went? Well, it's an interesting question, and I suppose curiosity would force us to ask it, but the question well, the question is based on a wrong assumption. You see, heaven is not a location that exists somewhere within the material universe so that we could get to it if we could only develop the technology to travel far enough. The way the Bible describes it, 
Heaven is not a location within the universe. It is rather a completely different realm that exists apart from the created world that you and I know. Now, heaven and earth are connected in that both are the province of God, but heaven is not a particular location within our solar system or within our galaxy or for that matter even within our universe. Heaven is the realm of God. The God who created the universe, but who is not contained within the universe. And so the point of Jesus' ascension is not that Jesus blasted off in some particular direction as though he was headed for Mars and then took a sharp right turn for the next galaxy over. The point of the ascension is that the resurrected Jesus has now gone back to that heavenly realm from which he came. The point of the ascension is that the Jesus who was dead on Friday was not only alive again on Sunday, but is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, from where he now reigns over both heaven and earth. Of course, skeptics will tell us that's not possible. If you are someone who is convinced that the material universe that we can see and touch is all there is, if you are certain there is no other reality beyond what meets our eyes, well then there is no heaven into which Jesus could ascend. But again, the Bible paints a very different picture for us. The Bible describes a world in which our world, our universe, is not all there is. The Bible says that there is a heaven and there is an earth. And just as importantly, that in the person and the ministry of Jesus Christ, the two have now been joined together. Now, I don't pretend for one moment to be able to explain that mystery to you. That's a little bit beyond my pay grade. I cannot tell you how the ascension happened any more than I can tell you how the resurrection happened. But I can tell you why it matters. This is not some childhood story that we can dispense with as of secondary importance. This is a story that goes right to the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And I say that this morning for at least two reasons. First, as we've already alluded to, the ascension, the return of Jesus back to the right hand of God the Father tells us who ultimately is in charge of the universe. One of the most immediate objections of secularists and atheists is that there can't be a God because there is simply too much tragedy and chaos and suffering in the world for there to be a God who is in charge. And if the ascension didn't actually happen, well, then it turns out they're right. And so is anyone else who cannot believe that the world is held together by a meaningful and divine purpose. Without the ascension of the resurrected Jesus, there is no reason to trust that in the end, all things will be good. 
But that is exactly what the Bible proclaims. Listen to these words from the book of Ephesians, which refers to the ascension, but not just to the event, but also to the meaning of the event. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1. He writes, God's power is like the working of His mighty strength, which He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be head over everything for the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills everything and every way. Now notice the use of the present tense in the verbs that are given to us in that passage. In these passages, in these verses, Paul does not say that God will one day place all things under the authority of Jesus. He says He already has. Jesus already has all power and dominion. All things already are under His feet. Now That doesn't require us to take a naive view of the world and pretend that there are no bad things that happen. The lingering effects of sin are still with us. And so in this world, we will have sorrow and we will have trouble and there will be tragedy and there will be suffering. Jesus himself told us as much. But those majestic words of Ephesians that we just read and the ascension to which they point us, they require us to understand that the same Jesus who walked the dusty roads of Palestine, the same Jesus who came among us healing the sick and fellowshipping with the outcast and comforting the sorrowful and bringing good news to the poor, the same Jesus who 2,000 years ago took a few measly loaves and some fish and fed the multitude. The same Jesus who raised the dead and spoke truth into the midst of chaos and forgiveness into the midst of hate. That same Jesus right now is directing the flow of history. And the story of this universe and our lives in it will one day turn out the way He intends for it to. This week we will observe what I believe the 75th anniversary of D-Day. Historians tell us that once the Allied forces established that beachhead in Normandy, it became at that point pretty much a given that the Allies would win the war. We can now look back and say that with some degree of historical certainty. The problem was that given the events of that day, nobody could know that yet. That war would still rage on for another year or more with much, much more bloodshed and violence. Well, in some ways, we're living that same story. When God called our Lord Jesus back from the grave and brought Him back to heaven and seated Him at the right hand of His authority, He at that moment determined the outcome of all things. And yet history must still play itself out. 
in the meantime. Because Christ our Lord has taken His place at the right hand of God the Father, we can already know that in the end He will direct all things for His good and for ours. The ascension is critical to understand who ultimately is in charge of this universe. But second, and just as important, because of what the ascension means and the authority of Christ to which it points us, the ascension also tells us that God's priorities must now become our priorities. If the ascension tells us that Jesus is running the universe, then it tells us that we who are His stewards must direct our energies in that same direction. Heaven is that realm, wherever it may be, it is that realm where God's perfect will finds complete expression. Heaven is that place where Father and Son and Holy Spirit dwell together in perfect unity and harmony. Heaven is that place where the ascended Christ sits in authority and where all things are exactly as God intends them to be. Now at first glance, it tells us right away then that heaven is a different kind of place than this world with all of its brokenness and all of its fallenness. But that does not mean that heaven and earth have no connection to each other. As unlikely as it may sound, you and I as the church of Jesus Christ, we are the embodiment of that ongoing connection. That is the role of the church in the world. What is it that we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are taught to pray those words as a way of asking that God will have His way here and now. That His heavenly realm will begin to find expression even as this world continues to turn. We are taught to pray that earth will become a little bit more like heaven. And when we utter those words from the Lord's Prayer, we are asking, therefore, that God will have His way with us as His church. We are praying that God will transform us into the kinds of people who live by heaven's priorities. When we pray those words, we are asking God to transform us into such a way that we become a little outpost, a little colony of heaven, if you will, right here in the midst of this unheavenly world. And when you begin to grasp that, you begin to see things differently. Consider, for example, the Sermon on the Mount, those famous teachings that Jesus gave and all throughout the sermon, Jesus says things that on the surface make no logical sense, at least not when you measure them by worldly standards. Jesus says, for example, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted. And he says, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, then give them the other cheek also. And he says, love your enemies, and, and while you're at it, pray for those who harm you. 
And when you hear those words at face value, you can't help but ask, what planet is Jesus talking about? Because this planet certainly doesn't appear to operate by that ethic. But the church should. Because those statements are statements of God's priorities. Those are statements of the ethic by which heaven operates. And Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church, has now ascended into heaven. He has assumed his place of rule and authority from where he is directing the entire cosmos towards that day when God's way of doing things finally prevails. And because we are his church, we are called to bear witness to that through the lives that we lead and the priorities that we adopt. We are called to take heaven's values and make them our values because the risen and reigning Lord has shown us already that this is the true end of all things. Why do we pray for the sick and care for the dying? Is it because we think that in somehow doing so we will end suffering? No. We do so because Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Why do we share hospitality with those in need or bother to feed the hungry? Is it because we think that in doing so we will end hunger once and for all? No, we do so because Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Why do we advocate for the unborn or work for justice and fairness for the oppressed? It is because Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Why do we speak words of encouragement and hope to each other? It is because Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Why do we forgive each other? It is because Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Most importantly, why do we preach salvation to a lost and hurting world? It is because Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. And from that position of rule and authority, He has already given us a glimpse of what the world will look like when God finally has His way and all things are made new. And so we live in this time and in this place in a way that reflects what we know will be true in that time and in that place. Because the resurrected Jesus has ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. The good news of the gospel is not simply that Jesus died and rose again as wonderful as that is. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus died and rose again and has now gone back into heaven from where he reigns over all things and from where he will one day return to judge all things 
and to make all things new. And when that happens, heaven and earth will be joined together for all eternity. And so let us live now in light of what we know will be true then. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that this world often appears to be spiraling off into chaos. We are surrounded every moment by never-ending stories of sorrow and struggle. And even in our own internal worlds, we feel at times overwhelmed by sadness and suffering. And it is easy to give in to despair. And to believe that at the end of the day, we have only ourselves to rely on. Remind us again that the risen Christ is seated at your right hand. And that in spite of what things may look like or feel like in this present moment, you have already given us a glimpse of what we know is coming. And that because of that, we can live in this moment with hope and with purpose. Move among us now. Restore us. Renew us. Call us back to hope in you. That we might live as your redeemed people. That we might live now in light of what we know will be true then. We make this prayer in the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The events of the gospel that the New Testament tells us about are not just events of history that we can read about and be curious about. Those events are actually an invitation for us to enter into a new and different kind of life because those events open the door to a different kind of world than we thought was possible. But we have to walk through it. We have to accept the offer. We have to receive the gift. If you're here this morning and you've never acknowledged Jesus Christ as Lord and been drawn into the life that he wants to give you, then as we sing here in a moment, let me ask you to come forward and we'll pray together as you begin that journey. If you're needing to connect with a church and find a fellowship of believers, we want to offer that to you in this moment as well. But Whatever the need may be, let's open ourselves to the new life that is only found in him. Let's stand and worship him together.